This is the primal scream of a dying regime. Pray for our enemies, because we're going medieval on these people. You're not got a free shot on all these networks lying about the people. The people have had a belly full of it. I know you don't like hearing that. I know you try to do everything in the world to stop that, but you're not going to stop it. It's going to happen. And where do people like that go to share the big lie? MAGA media. I wish in my soul, I wish that any of these people had a conscience. Ask yourself, what is my task and what is my purpose? If that answer is to save my country, this country will be saved. War Room. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Stick up, you just take it easy and nothing's gonna happen to you. Honey, give me the money. Give me the money. What money, mister? There ain't no money here. What you talking about? This here's a bank, ain't it? <laughs> it was a bank, but we failed three weeks ago. All right, now you get on out of here. Get on out there and tell my girl. Come on, come on, you tell her. Remember that this thing isn't as black as it appeared. I have some news for you, folks. I was just talking to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. But, George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie. I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. And I'll take mine now. No, but... You're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, Chris, uh, SVP is certainly the story of the hour on Wall Street as the bank has been shut down for the day by California regulators. This as the large institution in Silicon Valley with really broad reach across the technology industry has failed to find a buyer as a run on bank really outpaced the sale process. That's according to our own CNBC reporting. Shares of SVP financial tumbling 60 percent on Thursday after the bank announced a plan to raise more than $2 billion in capital. And today the stock has been halted. 
halted uh, after dropping another 60 percent. Shares really never reopened for trading. But clearly, uh, a lot of talk about how the Federal Reserve's aggressive rate hikes have impacted financial institutions like SVP, which clearly was caught off guard. And uh, now the question is whether this will have broader implications two weeks ahead of a Fed meeting coming up on March 21st. Chris. The Silicon Valley bank collapse rattling the startup world. One venture capitalist calling this a potential extinction level event for startups that could set innovation back by 10 years or more, adding big tech will not care about this. They have cash elsewhere. All little startups, tomorrow's Googles and Facebooks will be extinguished if we don't find a fix. Joining us now is Gary Tan, CEO of startup fund Y Combinator. Uh, Gary, welcome. Okay, so this is my question. How many of these startups that have been through Y Combinator, for example, have their cash tied up at Silicon Valley Bank and over this weekend are going to try to figure out how they're going to make payroll next week. Do they have to go to investors and say, can you front me some cash so that we can stay alive? YC has funded uh, about 3,000 active startups right now. I would guess that this affects more than 1,000 startups, and about a third of those startups will not be able to make payroll in the next 30 days uh, in the current configuration. You know, As of this morning, Rippling... Uh, which many startups use to manage payroll and benefits, you know, transfers were not being processed by SVB for payroll. And so that's a really existential threat for companies broadly. You know, these are founders who are texting me and calling me saying, do I need to furlough my workers next week? Because I do not have other bank accounts, you know, a Google or a Facebook or even companies farther along with a treasury department, they're going to be able to weather this. But if SVB is your only bank, it's actually an existential risk. You're going to go out of business if you can't pay payroll. And that starts Monday. Uh, what? It's gone. It's all gone. What's all gone? The money in your account. It didn't do too well. It's gone. Okay, Friday, 10 March, you're our Lord. 2023, it is Black Friday because the 16th largest bank in the uh, country the uh, centerpiece, the the uh, financial center of Silicon Valley is no more. It's been seized by first California regulators, the FDIC's in there. Peter Navarro joins me. This is the second biggest bank failure in the history of the country. The only bigger bank failure was in the financial collapse of 2008. Uh, this is a bank, uh, Peter, and I want to talk about Biden's policies and what, what the, the, the jacked-up interest rates the crushing of government securities you've been talking about. We've been warning people about the bond market here, and today it came into high relief. As uh, the venture capitalists there said, this is an extinction-level event for startup companies in Silicon Valley that can't make payroll. And to tell you the scale of this, 97% of the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, 97% are not insured by FDIC because they're in accounts over $250,000, these company accounts. The, the, that would be $169 billion. Let me repeat that. $169 billion of uninsured accounts. And as sure as the turning of the earth, Peter Navarro, they're going to be back in Washington, D.C. <laughs> looking, yes. for, uh, look, looking, for, looking for the MAGA Republicans in the House to bail them out. And by the way, I don't remember seeing any bailout. They're not running around yammering for help for the folks in East Palestine, Ohio. Dr. Navarro, what happened today? How serious is this? And why was this a direct result of the Federal Reserve and the Biden regime, sir? 
Steve, um, let's start with the fact that uh, the banks themselves now have $600 billion of unrealized losses on their books because of what Joe Biden has done. Okay, over six, that's, that's well over half a trillion dollars. Okay. Now you heard in the cold open, Steve, what the plaint is going to be to get the deplorables to once again bail out uh, the Silicon Valley billionaires. And that's going to be, oh, make if we don't save the startups, we're going to 10 years worth of innovation, right? That's going, to be, that's going to be the spin. You're going to see that over and over again. CNBC is going to lead that. Uh, Joe, Joe Scarborough will be the useful idiot for all of that. Now, how did this start? This all starts with the stagflation crisis. It's not just inflation, but it's stagflation as well. And the inflation crisis is a product of Joe Biden. Okay, let's be clear about that. This is, as Donald Trump would say, a politician-inspired crisis, right? What did Joe Biden do to create the current inflation? The first thing he did when he got in into office was to kill the oil and gas sector, which basically are strategic energy dominance, kept energy prices low. When you keep energy prices low, you keep fertilizer prices low, and you keep food prices low. So that alone began... Uh, the, the problem. The second Joe Biden mistake was appointing Pete Buttigieg um, as the Department of Transportation Secretary. Well, well, our supply chains around the country and globally were falling apart. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was was taking parental leave. Okay, I don't remember anybody in the in the Trump administration taking parental leave. I'm sorry when you when you sign on for a mission in the White House and in an administration as a political appointee, you get your yeah. ass to work seven days a week, yeah. okay? Okay, yeah. so that's that's the second thing. And of course, the third thing is the massive uh, yeah. inefficient overspending that the Biden regime, with the help yeah. of, of uh, yeah. so-called populists like Liz okay. Warren, yeah. is running the inflation. <laughs> Look, he just put a $6.8 trillion uh, budget in, up down. in your face, but I want to go yeah. back to... I want to go yeah, back me, to these unrealized to the losses. Let, let me just finish the thought here, Steve. Yeah. The, the, the thought here yeah. is that all of, these the bank, all of these banks, which yeah. have a bunch of cash, use that cash to buy treasury bonds, government securities, at a time before bond prices started to plunge because interest rates were going up. So yes. they, they get yes. invest in all this cash as, as, the, as their assets on the books, Biden caused the inflation yes. crisis, bond prices plummet, yes. and they're stuck with these unrealized losses. And as soon as somebody the like new, Peter Thiel kind of looks at the books, he says, yeah. I'm getting the hell out of that bank, right? He's like the first guy to get out. Well, and that's, that's what look, we have Thiel, now. When Thiel, said, when, when, when Thiel said that, it's the most extraordinary comment I've ever heard. I've never heard a major investor saying, uh, get your cash out, get your deposits out, not, not sell get the stock. Out. Real quickly. Yeah. The, the, yeah. A Silicon Valley backhand $17 billion of unrealized losses on their government portfolio. Peter Navarro just reported there are $600 billion of unrealized losses on bank balance sheets throughout the country. And this First Republic is the next one. It's, uh, you know, that will, people yeah, Steve, are, that uh, will uh, go. Stocks down 6%. Uh, yeah. 
And you called it, by the way, okay? You called it today. Nobody at CNBC called this. Steve Bannon said that by the end of the day, Silicon Valley Bank would be out of business. And you called that, okay? And the other thing that I want to point out, because you and I are like, we're globalists only. We watch what happens on our borders. On the uh, uh, the open uh, of our stock market, banks fell by 4% in Europe. And that's on top yeah. of what is a collapsing bank no, sector it's all there. Way. And okay. so this is going to be, a, as, as, as Cortez and Bannon and yours truly have been saying, this is a global contagion. Hey. It all starts yeah. with Joe Biden's bad policies. But, yeah. But here's what, by the way, I want to try to get you back on at six. I don't want you to go to cocktail hour yet. I'll get you, here's why. <laughs> this weekend, if they can't find a buyer, and they're not going to be able to find a buyer because they don't know what's in this. And it's got a hundred. Let me repeat this. It has $169 billion of uninsured FDIC deposits, $169 billion. They're going to be coming to Washington, D.C. over the weekend and saying, we can't make – you just heard the pitch right there. This is an extension-level event for innovation in this country. If you don't help us make payroll, these companies are going to go out of business yeah. and it's going to t- yeah. destroy innovation don't, for 10 don't years. Don't cry That's for the me, pitch. Argentina, These are brother. your betters. Don't yeah. hey the, yeah. the crocodile tears. Hey, do you say hey, by the way did they run Let's to East the they run to East Palestine, back. Ohio, and ask to bail them out? Yeah. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, because you know what? I mean, look, the jobs report came out, and I know you don't want to talk about it, but I, I can tell you that the people who got screwed by the higher interest rates wasn't yeah. just the Silicon Valley folks now. It was the deplorables who I were do. seeing their wages get driven uh, in I want the a toilet. Hold it. We're gonna we're gonna get you we're gonna get you on at six. I know you don't like working in the the late hours. We're gonna have to. Well, Navarre, yeah. how do people get to you? How do they get to the podcast? How do they get to the podcast? PeterNavarro.substack.com. PeterNavarro.substack.com. And uh, today's one is hot as a firecracker, yeah. Steve, because there's there's a couple of pieces of breaking news in there. Okay, perfect. Uh, Peter, fantastic job. Uh, what's your getter? You don't do Twitter. What's your getter account? No, yeah, yeah. Getter is uh, real P Navarro, real P Navarro. Getter is the Twitter killer, and uh, it's all up there as well. But the the hub through which everything runs is the Substack now. PeterNavarro.substack.com. Follow Navarro. There's going to be breaking news of the weekend. We're going to be up on Getter all weekend. Short commercial break. Peter, thank you very much. We'll try to check you down the six o'clock hour because there's still more breaking news on this debacle remember this is like 2008 you just had a big bank fail 16th biggest bank in the country 200 billion dollars of assets 170 169 billion dollars of uninsured deposits silicon valley bank in the center of silicon valley we're gonna take a short commercial break we have matt gates congressman matt gates will be in the house is going to join us next in the war room to the end, just watch and see. It's all started, everything's begun, and you are over. Cause we're taking down the CCP. Spread the word all through Hong Kong. We will fight till they're all gone. We rejoice when there's no more. Let's take down the CCP. Who's your host, Stephen K. Bath? Okay, welcome back. We have Senator, uh, Congressman Matt Gates. I'm jumping ahead there. Congressman Matt Gates. First off, you know high tech as well as anybody. Silicon Valley Bank, the premier bank, 
16th biggest in the country, second biggest bank failure, came out of nowhere, recalled this morning, said by the end of the day this thing will be taken over. And the California regulators jumped in front of the Fed. This is 100% because of Biden's policies. The unrealized losses in the uh, government securities portfolio blew the, you know, it was a a torpedo below the word line. They're coming to you, brother, next week. They're coming to D.C. They've already laid it out. It's a thousand startups. They're the best in the country. You got all these payrolls. You got $169 billion. They're going to come and ask for a bailout from the House. Well, if there is an effort to use taxpayer money to bail out Silicon Valley Bank, the American people could count on the fact that I will be there leading the fight against such a bailout. I mean, what we have observed is remarkable. The financial arm of Silicon Valley has just been severed before our very eyes. And I also think that the Biden policies around COVID had something to do with this because it created an investment bubble in Silicon Valley in tech that once we got past those policies, once the American people rose up and said we will not be locked in our homes, we will not have our local retail and our local uh, industry shut down and live our life in our pods getting mail products delivered to us and you know play on our apps all day. Once that was deconstructed, you saw uh, that bubble begin to burst. You, start, you saw it with the layoffs. You saw it with a lot of these companies have been freezing promotions, have been, have been stopping the hiring process, and it's a cash uh, diminution. You're, you're the most sophisticated guy in the House on the right about social media and big tech and all that, for, you know, given your family relationships and others. You're, you're going to sit there. You would be the one guy to be able to make the argument why we should contain the contagion and bail this out. Yeah, throughout my whole life, I have seen the moral hazard that comes with using the people's money to bail out the elites when they make bad decisions. We saw it uh, and it really manifest with a lot of energy and frustration with the Occupy Wall Street movement. We saw it r- with the financial crisis that was hitting as my generation was graduating college and graduating professional school and the large institutions were collapsing. The large institutions that were the vaulted icons of American life, the true soft power of America was, you know, Golden, Goldman Sachs and, uh, you know, Bears and Lehman. And when that went away, capital. you, buddy, you saw the political industrial complex line up to that Pretty quickly. Is this, this going to have an impact on national security? They're talking about national security. What do they mean when they're oh, talking about it, national security? I, I predict that at the tip of the spear of the Biden administration's requests for a bailout for Silicon Valley Bank will be the Department of Defense. You'll have the Department of Defense saying, gosh, you know, we've got all these Silicon Valley relationships. We've got all these contracts with companies that now are going to go insolvent. They won't be able to be part of the research, development, test and evaluation mission. And we'll it will expose China. a lot. We'll, we'll fall, fall behind China. We'll fall behind China or we'll become more reliant on China. We'll become more reliant on other places in the world. If you really believe in American resilience, they'll tell us. We have to come in and, and bail out Silicon Valley Bank. Something the pressure to bail this out is going to be intense. You do understand that. Oh, and, and it, will, it will emanate from California, of all places. Rokahana. Rokahana, you believe in economic patriotism, maybe not a bailout. I want to have you on the heroic thing of what you do in Syria. But from uh, Abu Dhabi, I think it was today, Hillary Clinton and, and, uh, and Joe Scarborough. Can we go ahead and play that? Uh, and I want to have uh, – let's go ahead and play it, and we'll have uh, Congressman Gates respond. 
Madam Secretary, you, you know better, I think, than anybody alive about partisanship in the United States and what it's cost our country. Uh, the Ukrainian war has been one thing that's brought Democrats and Republicans together for the most part. Are you hopeful that that will continue despite the fact some House Republicans um, are, are being critical of the Biden administration and even Republicans that are supporting the war effort? Well, I am hopeful that it continues, Joe, because I think, as we just heard, uh, this is a war of aggression and invasion. Uh, the behavior of the invaders has been barbaric, and it really is a war for um, not just the freedom of the Ukrainian people, although that is first and foremost. It is a war for our values, uh, for what we believe uh, should be the birthright of every person in Ukraine, in Europe, in the United States, around the world. So I want to underscore that as we support the courage and... Because I want to give much time with you. Max Boot has, in today's foreign affairs, apologized for being a neocon, saying about trying to export it. Why... Is she the why is she the essence of what you're actually fighting against? Well, as Hillary Clinton does everything possible to water down and erode our birthright by championing open border policies, by saying that everyone who comes to America is a legitimate asylum seeker, uh, she really juxtaposes a great contrast to the commitment that she thinks all of us ought to make to the birthright in Ukraine. And part look, I hope Ukraine prevails, but pardon me for saying that America's value set is not lashed to the value set in Ukraine. Our values are not on the line for which guy in a tracksuit runs Crimea. Uh, our values are not on the line on who holds the Donbass region, right? I mean, and American values are more enduring of that. And the signal there, not the noise, is she actually doesn't think that much of our values in the first place. And Joe Scarborough has no values. I know that because he's one of my predecessors in Congress. And I remember the Joe Scarborough from Florida's first congressional district who was actually voting to impeach Bill Clinton, who actually said that Bill Clinton was a national security threat, who was, uh, you know, uh, one of the styled himself as one of the ferocious Republicans fighting against the Clinton administration. But, you know, New York changes the man, I guess. Uh, with, with Hillary now as a masthead for the pro-war Democrats, we see fewer and fewer of the Democrat doves. I don't know what's more extinct in this town, the anti-war Democrat dove or the Republican fiscal hawk. And I put everybody on the boards as to whether or not we should stay in Syria this last week. And by the way, that's just my leadoff hitter, Steve. One of the things I negotiated for in this deal with Kevin McCarthy is that he would not play the games Nancy Pelosi played to block privileged resolutions. And matters of war and peace under the War Powers Act go right to the floor in Congress. They don't get to get, get rat-holed away in committee land. And so I used a tool that would not have been available under the rule of Speaker Pelosi and to Kevin McCarthy's great credit, he's allowing these things to come to the floor. And we had a vote on Syria. And you know what? More Democrats voted for the pro-war position than the anti-war position. In Syria, Syria, where no one can tell me what the enduring defeat of ISIS means. Like, d how many Americans, how many of my constituents, who, by the way, are in Syria right now, have to go to bed in some, in some desert in a faraway land so that we can, what, 
extinguish the last sympathy from the last beating heart of the last person living in some river, river valley. It is not an attainable goal and is so offensive when these neocons wave around the 2001 authorization to use military force against the people who caused 9-11 as a basis to be in Syria in 2023. There are people fighting in Syria right now who were not even born when that authorization was passed. About only one in every 10 members of the House of Representatives was even here to vote on that. So to wave that around like some global permission slip is nuts. And the other one they use is the Israel thing. Oh, oh, we can't abandon Israel. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Israel cut their deal with Russia to keep Iran out of southern Syria. Like if you if the Israel-Russia deal makes you uncomfortable, you think Israel was going to rely on us in the Middle East? We are not a Middle Eastern power. We are a Pacific power. We are an Atlantic power, as you so aptly said in one of the great, greatest speeches I've ever seen at CPAC. And so us toiling away in the deserts, if it's going to happen, it's not going to happen without members of Congress having to take an actual vote you, every time. You were also defending the Constitution about it's the House's about declaring war. This is ridiculous. We only got a couple of minutes, and we're going to go to uh, Palm Beach with uh, Natalie. But I got to ask you, this was your leadoff hitter. The big kahuna, the, the, where you're going to is Ukraine. You're going to force us in Ukraine. Walk us through, because I got to tell you, you were magnificent in making the case why this is ridiculous. And quite frankly, the arguments against it, particularly from the Republicans, were embarrassing. What about Ukraine? Well, I do not believe we should have troops in Ukraine. Now, I have to be able to prove that we have DOD personnel in Ukraine right now. When the generals come and testify before our committees, they say we do not. I do not believe them. I know the logistics kits that have to go with these M1 Abrams. I know the force protection that has to exist for the contractors, for the, the vendors, for the entire supply chain that goes along with these HIMAR systems and the preparation for the F-16s, which is coming, by the way. And so uh, once I've got that definitive evidence, we'll be taking more Ukraine votes. Uh, it's sad how many Republicans are willing to debase themselves in like this embrace of Ukraine that just far exceeds what an American leader should be thinking about each and every day. We got our own problems here in this country. And the fact that we, it, well, you know why it is? I'm sorry to take so much time on this. It's people get elected to Congress and they all of a sudden fashion themselves as global leaders, as citizens of the world. And they forget like there are people back in Paducah, Kentucky who voted for you. There are people back in Mississippi and Arkansas who voted for you. And you need to put those people first. We got to go. But real quickly, the pressure next week on the Silicon Valley, because this is the neoliberal neocon order collapsing before us. The pressure on you guys next week to bail this thing out. Uh, I believe there will be bailout requests, and I think it will be cloaked in national security and economic security, and it will be mired in, uh, I think, a lot of the political patronage and swapping of campaign donations for favors that, that deeply sickens me. Uh, your podcast, all your content, how do they get to you? Firebrand is my podcast, but Steve Bannon and I are going to be on the Timcast tonight, so... Tim Poole, Steve Bannon, Matt Gates, Congressman Dan Bishop's going to stop by. It's going to be a great time. Amazing. It's going to be unbelievable. Thank you for stopping by. Congressman Gates in the house. I got to tell you, next week is going to be intense on Capitol Hill. Okay, we're going to toss over to Natalie in Palm Beach. I will be back at 6 o'clock. More in Silicon Valley banked in. Natalie Winters will take it for the rest of this half hour and then back here at 6. We have not funded gain-of-function research on this virus 
in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you're, no matter how many times you're parsing you say words, it, there it was didn't research. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Your microphone. Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. So what was, let me take, finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its yeah. transmissibility to humans, right. you're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. Let's okay, you get NIH. one person. Let's read from the NIH definition of gain of function. This is your definition. Dr. Fauci was affirmatively told, told in an email that uh, NIAID had a monetary relationship with the Wuhan uh, Institute through uh, EcoHealth Alliance. He, he was told this in January 27th of 2020. Do you think that Dr. Fauci intentionally lied under oath to Senator Paul when he vehemently denied NIH's funding of gain of function research? I think there's no doubt that NIH was funding gain-of-function research. Is it likely that American tax dollars funded the gain-of-function research that created this virus? I think it did, not only from NIH, but from the State Department, USAID, and from DOD. I'm out of time. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the War Room. I guess the reception to Steve getting a haircut was so overwhelmingly positive that he had to go and do it again. So I'm here. In the meantime, Natalie Winters, the co-host and executive editor of War Room, filling in. I'm sorry to trigger you guys. Play some videos of Anthony Fauci. You may recall that pretty notorious and infamous exchange with Senator Rand Paul, which I would argue makes the case that he perjured himself, especially in light of the testimony that we saw from Dr. Redfield, that was the end of that little opening clip uh, that we just had. We'll have Dr. Malone joining us shortly, but just to sort of pick up where, you know, Rep Gates and Steve left off, right? The idea of turning Ukraine, Syria, all these countries and faraway lands into, you know, essentially new forever wars. I think that's exactly what we see going on here with pandemics and the idea of public health emergencies, right? And I think the particularly scary part that you see in this hearing is how gain-of-function research sort of has become the weapon, the tool, and I'm sure you could argue the vaccines and the mask mandates and the school closures too, um, but really have sort of served as the armaments, the ammo, to wage this new forever war under the, I would say, guise, under the pretext of pandemic prevention. Now, Dr. Malone, I think we have him on with us. Uh, you had a wonderful substack reacting uh, to this, what again, I know we keep using the word bombshell, but I do think that that's an accurate description um, of the testimony that we saw from former CDC head Robert Redfield talking about the NIH was not just intimately involved uh, with gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but even more insidious, the cover-up. So I just want to get your quick reaction, because I know we love to say on this show, you know, we're the top spreaders of misinformation, that it's great to feel vindicated. Um, but even I have to say that some of the statements that Dr. Redfield said yesterday, or rather two days ago, 
it wasn't even vindication. I think we almost under, uh, understated the, I think, levels of evilness that went on at the NIH under Tony Fauci, under Francis Collins, to cover up the origins of COVID and NIH's involvement. So just your thoughts uh, reacting to those clips and more broadly the testimony that we saw two days ago. Well, I haven't been under any illusions about uh, what goes on at, at NIAID and NIH in general and the uh, true evil of uh, Francis Collins and Tony Fauci. I've lived with that basically my whole career. Uh, and I've been under no illusions. What's fascinating about all of this is that what Bob Redfield represents, he talks about in his written testimony that he's the co-founder of the Institute for Human Virology. What he doesn't mention is the other co-founder is Bob Gallo. There is an ancient, ancient view that goes back to the beginning of my career between Bob Gallo and Tony Fauci. And uh, where, where we're at right now is that the truth is coming out about Tony Fauci and some of his colleagues are, you know, former colleagues are now willing to speak the truth. Uh, whereas in the past, they've always been reluctant to do so because Tony has a notorious reach and capability to uh, both reward and punish uh, those that he wishes to. And that's what's gone on here. That's, that's covered in some of the other testimony. What I also found fascinating about Bob Redfield's uh, statement here is that he also fingered State Department, USAID, as well as DOD. Now, I had revealed back, I think, two falls ago that uh, DOD Defense Threat Reduction Agency had participated in the funding. And I found that out from colleagues within uh, DITRA. It was the threat mitigation branch, the same people responsible for the uh, corralling of the loose nukes as the Soviet Union fell. Uh, but I had no idea that USAID and state were involved. This is basically directly fingering the CIA. USAID is largely a, a uh, functional arm, just like DARPA is, of our intelligence community. And so what... Bob is saying, and Bob would know, uh, his clearance, I'm sure, is quite a bit higher than mine. Uh, he's, he's basically saying that the intelligence community has been directly funding Wuhan Institute of Virology, which uh, is consistent with really the emerging working model of what went on here, is that the way this story goes is that the CIA lost most of its assets in the People's Republic under the CCP. They got outed. And they were all assassinated. The CCP doesn't uh, monkey around and put people in prison for uh, treason. Uh, and um, so they all got assassinated. The CIA needed to have and felt that it needed to have insight into what China was doing in the world of biowarfare and biodefense and all of that kind of research. They appear to have engaged in a quid pro quo in which they provided not only funding but technology. EcoHealth Alliance transferred technology directly to the Wuhan Institute of Virology that was enabling for the studies that were done. And they also provided the capital in exchange for their ability to have a limited look about concerning what China was doing at the WIV, uh, Chinese National Academy of Sciences facility. So that's the backstory here is we've got some uh, kind of longstanding bureaucratic feud that goes back to the earliest days of an NCI versus NIAID and the arm wrestling over who was going to be in charge of the AIDS budget. And uh, that's still playing out. Of course, there's a lot of hard feelings. 
and we have now this, you know, somebody, Bob, Bob is dropping the other shoe about the involvement of our intelligence community in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which many of us have long suspected. Well, I think we were speaking at CPAC in, during the break um, in one of the war room shows how you, you called this. You said they're going to try to give a fall guy, right, a sacrificial lamb. Have so kudos, to, <laughs> kudos yeah. to you, a, a hat tip. But I think you bring up the more interesting angle in all of this, which is, you know, as someone who came at this story more from the Chinese Communist Party foreign influence operation realm, you come at it, of course, from the scientific knowledge as the inventor of the mRNA vaccines. Um, but I saw this just as a textbook case of Chinese Communist Party compromise. A lot of the Western scientists who had sort of prematurely debunked the lab leak, they just had conflicting interests with the Chinese Communist Party because it's hard to wrap your head around the idea that the United States government would willfully give taxpayer dollars to fund gain-of-function research, which, as Steve always hammers, is essentially the weaponization of viruses. So I think maybe my, my question, and I ask this earnestly, is the theory of the case that the NIH, the NIAID, again, in addition to these other entities, of course, USAID, DOD, even Google was funding EcoHealth Alliance, do you think that it was incompetence? They just don't understand the Chinese Communist Party, the threat that they pose. They think that this is, you know, biodefense programs. This is just how you do it. Or do you think there's malice on the part of some of these institutions? Or are they so far gone in terms of Chinese Communist Party infiltration and compromise that they're not really even American entities to begin with? Like, how did we get to this point? Yeah, uh, so what is the true theory of the case? And can I select all of the above, please, ma'am? Uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a hot mess, uh, to use farm language, uh, and, and uh, it, is, it is steaming and full of maggots. The, uh, um, my theory of the case is, is we have a strong component of what Hannah Arendt uh, notoriously labeled as the banality of evil, this tendency of bureaucrats and government officials to want to advance their career and they're siloed and they just narrowly go about uh, doing what they're told to do, trying to uh, rise up the ranks and do what they're told and get you know more funding. This is, comes from the uh, Hannah's uh, book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And, and the Eichmann trials. I think it's the intersection of the, the failure to think, which is what Hannah Arendt uh, attributed the banality of evil to, and absolutely there's been nefarious intent, and then the problem of complex systems. And I wrote another substack talking about this. Unfortunately, I, I diagrammed it as a Venn diagram, and no one could get beyond Kamala Harris's affinity for Venn diagrams. But, but I really do think what we have is a complex phenomena that's involved in the interactions of a bunch of things. And in the domain of nefarious scheming, uh, we always have the intelligence agencies and their long, long history of failure to think through unintended consequences. They even have a term for it, of course. It's called blowback. Well, I think that it's fair to call Dr. Redfield sort of a whistleblower in this setting, right? What he's saying basically makes Anthony Fauci guilty of perjury if you take him at his word, right? Yeah. Saying that the United States did fund gain of I, I don't research. think there's any doubt about Tony's perjury. And I also 
spoke quite clearly about that at CPAC on uh, War Room, and, and there was a big Steve <laughs> grabbed it, grabbed that uh, baton and ran with it, as you'll recall. But uh, Tony Tony lies in the way that most trained intelligence officers lie, and you we have, have about, to. We have about really two two minutes left. I just I just wanted to ask you real quick because I, I followed the, the cast of characters in this whole debacle that is the origins of COVID nineteen. Why do you think it, it was it was Dr. Redfield? Because he, again, was the former director of the CDC, right? The CDC is no small player in this very, you know, pit of vipers, right, that is the biomedical, the biopharmaceutical industrial complex, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, why him? Why now? We have about a minute and 30 uh, until until break, <clears throat> but I am going to hold you over. But just curious, sort of the inside baseball. Why do you think it, as it I, took As I told to you, out? there is a longstanding feud with uh, Redfield's uh, basically, uh, you can think of him as his commanding officer, Bob Gallo, and Tony Fauci. Rumor has it that uh, you'll recall, if you went back in time, you'd see that there was a point in time where Redfield kind of broke ranks uh, as a member of that committee and as the director of CDC. Up to that point, he'd been kind of going along with the narrative, and then he broke ranks. The rumor was that Bob Gallo told him that he better come clean or it was going to destroy his entire legacy. That's the way I heard the story. And uh, Redfield responds to Bob uh, very directly. Uh, uh, Dr. Gallo is uh, one of, you know, he is absolutely in the same caliber and cast as Tony Fauci. Uh, this is a den of thieves, as you point out, or a pit of snakes. And uh, all these guys have been uh, fighting each other bureaucratically for money and power. For my entire career, that's 30 years plus. <laughs> All right, we're running up against a break. Make sure you stick around, Dr. Malone, and of course the audience. And trigger warning, we are going to open next block with some more Anthony Fauci interviews, some more lies, of course, because that's the only thing he seems to be able to do. Make sure you stick around. Steve will be joining us in about 15 minutes. He won't have to put up with me much longer. Got a 90-second commercial break. Hang in there. Has arrived. The new social media taking on big tech. Protecting free speech and canceling cancel culture. Join the marketplace of ideas. The platform for independent thought has arrived. Superior technology. No more selling your personal data. No more censorship. No more cancel culture. Enough. Getter has arrived. It's time to say what you want the way you want. Download now. Well, let me ask you about what Dr. Uh, Robert Redfield is charging, that you frozen out that you didn't want him there, you didn't want him at these mm. meetings, and that was deliberate. You know, Neil, I really feel badly about that because I, I know Bob a long time. He is totally and unequivocally incorrect in what he's saying that I excluded him. I had nothing to do with who would be on that call. That call was organized by a group of evolutionary virologists in order to discuss the possibility that this might actually be a virus that was actually engineered. So I didn't put anybody on the list of that call, nor did I take anybody else. So it's really unfortunate that in a public setting like the hearing that Dr. Redfield made that absolutely incorrect statement. The other thing well, he said that's interesting, then, Neil, who would he be said, on no, that but, call? did you decide to be on that call or did these other <laughs> virologists? <laughs> Neil, I just said it. I didn't have anything to do about the decision who would be on the call. The evolutionary virologist, Dr. Eddie Holmes, yeah. Christian Anderson, 
All of the others that won, they made the decision who's on the call. I didn't add anybody to the call. So you didn't know going into the call, you didn't know going into the call that the CDC director would not be part of that call. Do you think he should have been? Uh, well, I mean, retrospectively, it would have been okay to have him on the call, of course, but I didn't put him or take him off. And it's really disturbing that in a public hearing of a congressional hearing, he makes an accusatory statement that has no basis whatsoever in reality. But another point, Neil, that's important, he said in his own mind that he was kept out because he was of the opinion that this might be a lab leak. Half the people on the call were of the opinion that it might be a lab leak. So his rationale of why he thought he was excluded is an invalid rationale. So it's really unfortunate that he made those statements. He's a good guy. I've known him for years. I'm so I mean, I'm just really a little bit disturbed about why he said that, which it was completely untrue. Any regrets you have, Dr. Fauci, over all this? Do you ever second guess yourself? <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, of course, when you say that, I mean, nobody has done anything perfectly in this very complicated saga that we've been through over the past more than three years. Of course, we could have done things better. And in those areas that we could have done things better, of course, you regret that you didn't do things better. So I'm not perfect. Certainly I'm not. And therefore, I could have done things better. No doubt about that, as should everybody feel that way. Welcome back. I love the question. Any regrets? And Anthony Fauci's response is just wonderful. Now, Dr. Malone, I know your wonderful book is called Lies My Government Told Me, but if you're looking for a sequel opportunity, I think you may already have the content that, that you need to write a couple sequels. Criticism and, and, of the book. <laughs> the criticism of the book is it's not long enough. I think, I think that's a very valid point. Now, unfortunately, that was a long intro, so we only have a few minutes left, but I just want your your reaction to what to what Fauci is saying, how he continues to lie. The media continues to let him get away with it. What what do you have to say? Yeah, in all seriousness, uh, as I mentioned, Tony lies like a trained CIA officer. He deflects and um, uses these various ruses that you just saw deployed right there. Of course, Tony didn't set up who was on the call. He has one of his lackeys do this. He always uses surrogates for everything. He's too high up. He has many, many people in his press office that handle all this stuff for him. Remember that Tony and Jeremy Farrar both got burner phones to have these conversations. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew that they needed to speak off the record. They knew they had a problem. They knew they were going to try to cover it up. The evidence is unequivocal. And Tony's uh, deflections here stand in stark contrast to the editorial today published by our colleague and good friend, Naomi Wolf, in which she clearly comes out and apologizes for a series of misconceptions that she's developed based on press manipulation concerning Mr. Trump and many of the issues that have occurred over the last three years, including, of course, the January 6th commission. We're never gonna see Tony Fauci showing the courage that Naomi Wolf showed today. 
Well, and I think it's so interesting, too, you bring up how these NIAID, NIH personalities, you know, they all sort of run cover, right? It's Anthony, or was, rather, Anthony Fauci's personal fiefdom, right? The idea that he didn't have any control over what was going on on the call. It's sort of like the excuse, the rationale that he gives for EcoHealth Alliance, right? He's like, well, I didn't fund the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I gave the money to EcoHealth Alliance. Um, I think it is, yeah. So Ron Johnson predicted exactly this. He said that it's going to be extremely difficult to hold any of these people to account because they are seasoned D.C. administrative state bureaucrats and they know how to cover their backside. One of the things that we've come to learn is that in many of these key meetings, they were held under Chatham House rules. People were told not to take notes, not to take any recordings, don't bring their cell phones so there would be no traceability. They knew what they were doing was wrong. Okay? They knew they were covering up bad stuff, and they knew that they were complicit in this most massive uh, um, travesties in the history of public health. There, there's no question that that's the case. And then we had, for instance, Chris Ray coming out with his story where all he would talk about, I'm talking about director of CIA, remember? It was all CCP, 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 look over here. Um, Don't look over the fact that, in fact, it was the United States government that funded this. And, oh, by the way, the Department of Defense has directly denied to a congressional investigator that they provided any of this funding in in stark contrast to what Bob Redfield has said. And Bob would know he's got roots that are way deeper than mine in all these areas, including DOD. He comes out of DOD. He knows exactly what's going on. And I think there was Freedom of Information Act requests that showed they were shredding the notes that they had written during these meetings about the origins of of COVID. Well, we got about 30 seconds left, so please let people know where they can follow you, your work, your substack, your books, where they can keep in touch. Oh, you're very kind. Uh, rwmalonemd.substack.com. You don't have to pay. It's for free. Um, If you want to support it, it's what supports us and our work, but you don't need to. Uh, the book is available on at all booksellers, uh, including Amazon as ebook. And uh, you may enjoy visiting the Malone Institute. Thank you, Dr. Malone. We are up against a break, unfortunately, but thank you for coming.